0: Hello and welcome. I'm Brian pace Braga, and you're listening to Building Business and Balance, Conversations with BPB. I created this podcast for anyone looking for insight, mentorship and guidance from someone who's been there and back again on the road to success. I'm so excited to bring the most brilliant thought leaders and friends on air with me to get real about what it means to build business and balance and how you define your own success. Our first episode features my longtime mentor and friend, Frank Justra. Frank has been inspiring me to think bigger since I started stalking him in 2005. This is not a joke. Sometimes you have to stalk your mentor to make the connection. Take a listen as Frank and I discuss everything from quality olive oil, the value of gold, to fatherhood and how fulfillment changes throughout our lives as we expand our definition of personal wealth.
1: When you're young, and I'm pointing at you, <laughs> um, you're chasing things, and uh, you're chasing whatever you're chasing for a relationship, or you're chasing for wealth, or you know, business success, you know, fame, whatever you want to call it, you're chasing, and you're. I st- I, what happened with me is that I got to a point in life where I realized that, you know, we're all going to die. Okay. And um, you want to die just a rich person that doesn't feel good about themselves? And I started to think about shouldn't my life have a purpose?
0: Let's get into my conversation with Frank. Good morning, Frank.
1: Good morning, Brian.
0: How are you? I'm good. Good. Beautiful day here in Vancouver. Yep, we had a beautiful weekend. We did. Finally, some summer weather. Um, Thanks for doing this today. Hey, No problem. Um, We've had a lot of time together over the last few years, um, and uh, I'm happy to be able to expand this conversation, and I'm going to do my best to summarize all the conversations we've had over the last few years um, into as easy as a takeaway as we can for uh, listeners that don't have that same opportunity that I've had. Cool. So um, I'm just sitting here on the couch watching you listen to two of uh, your new songs that you've either written yourself or co-written, and you've spoken about passion Mm -hmm. um, a lot to me, um, and your passion um, is across multiple industries, Multiple areas of, of the world. Um, where where did your passion for writing music come from? And can you dig into a little bit more of someone being passionate about what they're doing?
1: Well, I think you have to start with the whole concept of what, what passion is. And um, I have found, just reflecting on my life, that passion was the reason that I succeeded in many things and throughout the various careers that I've had in my life. Um, And I actually did a speech on this in uh, New York a number of years ago when we were at uh, my olive oil competition. I also make olive oil. And it's rated number one in the world in most competitions. And so I gave a speech on how that came about. And the whole olive oil business came out of my passion for cooking and cooking great Italian food. And the natural migration was to create the best olive oil in the world. Uh, I was I'm very passionate about cooking like I love it I talk about it it's to me it's it's the way I entertain you've seen my my dinner parties um, so that made, uh, allowed me to think about everything that I did in my life and going back to my passion for building an investment bank like I really wanted us to be the best in mining finance and I created a world-class mining team from nothing Because I wanted us to be the best. And it just, it wasn't about the money. I I cared less about the money than I did about making Yorkton, Yorkton Securities in those days, a great boutique firm, the best in its business. Um, Film, Lionsgate, um, most people don't know this, but my passion for film came long before Lionsgate and I actually had a company that I created in 1986 11 years before Lionsgate called the International Movie Group and that was my first foray into, into film and the reason I got into it is because I loved movies I mean I grew up watching movies and I every kind of movie old ones and new ones and black and white ones I was just movie crazy and so it was something that I loved and I you know it was part of my fabric and so when I had the opportunity to create something in the movie industry, I was all in, and I spent those first few years again long before Lionsgate learning the business. Um, and you asked about uh, music. We're sitting here at West Sonic Studios. You know what's interesting? Both West Sonic, which is my our music studio and the lot we're sitting in which is uh, North Shore Studios yeah it used to be called Lionsgate I studios know. it was one of my first acquisitions when I created Lionsgate to buy it was to buy the studio lot um, which they later, later sold when I left the company but both of those were born from passion and they were born from things that I loved, my hobbies um, uh, West Sonic started as a lark we just got together and said no I like writing songs yeah let's get a studio and let's see what happens and we've turned it into a business but it was because I loved the art of songwriting.
0: Yep. It's, uh, it's a pattern I've seen uh, in a lot of our conversations that passion is... Curiosity, I've seen, has gotten you into things, and mm-hmm. then the passion has, has really driven you to, to, to win.
1: Well, I think a curious mind is really the key to success. I mean, if you don't have a curious mind, you're going to be stuck in one, one uh, dimension. You know, like There are great, great business people that only know one thing. Yeah. And they're very good at it, but they don't have a curious mind to learn about other things. And to me, that's what makes life exciting.
0: I'm with you. So let's go back to your olive oil that you mentioned first. Mm-hmm. And it's named after My your mother. mother. Yeah, Domenica Fiori. Yes. So can we go back to those early years of of, of the memories of, of, of home, of your mom, your dad? Um, God bless them. Yeah. Um, both. Um, but... Walk me through those those early years and those formative years for you.
1: Well, you know, we, we grew up with very little money. Now, that's one thing that I remember clearly. Uh, although we were always well-fed, I mean, my mother was an amazing cook, and we had a, a very large vegetable garden where she grew everything. Everything was fresh and wonderful. So it wasn't like we went and we had clothes and we had a roof over our heads. It was wonderful. But we didn't have any discretionary money growing up, like none. And so what I remember is that I had this hunger to be able to buy things, you know, whether it was a candy bar or a bicycle, but we had to work for it. Like I started working when I was 12 with a paper route and later on, you know, working at a gas station. Throwing hay in the summertime onto you know in in the fields and catching chickens in the middle of the night, which is a really disgusting job, uh, for two fifty an hour. And eventually, I ended up working in a grocery store when I was fifteen, uh, and that took me right through high school and into college. Uh, but I worked very hard, and you know I was able to buy my own car. I it took flying lessons, but it was all my own money. We had nothing; uh, our parents couldn't give us any. Uh, spending money for you know we bought our clothes I remember when we were kids we used to buy our clothes once a year at the end of August just before we went to school we went drove into shopping mall into into the big city and bought our clothes and that was it one one set of clothes
0: <laughs> yeah and and your your relationship you I know you've um, you've got a great relationship with with your friends and friends have been really important to you mm-hmm. especially your high school friends you you take them on an annual trip you get everyone together and um, How important were friends to you in in high school and and late in elementary school?
1: You and I have chatted about this many, many times. And I always have told you, um, you make friends a priority. They are like your family. And you keep them close. And you know that I work very hard to keep our group together, dinner parties, adventures, trips. And it's to keep that friendship going so that we see each other often. Because I think that it's, it's... you have your family and you have your friends. And that those are the two most important things in your life, relationships. I have my high school friends. Uh, guys I've known for, I can't even count the number of years, nine of us go fishing every year. we And we've been doing this since we were like in our 20s. And it's it's wonderful because they knew you when, <laughs> before you were successful. And so we can joke around about, you know, Uh, what a bunch of goofballs we were when we were in high school you know one of them just passed away last week um, you know after uh, battling cancer for a number of years and you know it was very sad for us you know it we were we are a really tight-knit group
0: yeah I've always respected that and uh, I've definitely definitely done the same with my group of friends and I remember you always saying that once you've gotten to uh, a certain place and in financial financial freedom that all you've got at the end of the day is the experiences with the, with the people you care about. Yeah. And I think that's a, a really important lesson. Um, you can keep chasing.
1: Yeah, no, listen. You really, I think one of the big realizations you come to in life is that if you're collecting things or accumulating wealth, there, after a certain point, it's meaningless, so I made a decision many years ago to stop collecting things and start having experiences instead because th- that's what you leave with, you, your memories. And it's, I, I find that very important.
0: Walk me through that that moment or those moments where that shifted, where the accumulation of material things or maybe a little more... I
1: don't think it was a moment. It was an evolution. Okay. And I can't say there was an epiphany in a moment. Uh, there, there were several moments in time where i made a pivotal change in my life but but it it started i think when i really started to think about it was when i was running yorkton securities and you know in the investment banking business it's all about money and i remember you know it was all about money and bonuses and you're managing a number of uh people that work for you that are all battling over their you know their piece of the pie and and i started to find that really um unpleasant I didn't like it I I I left the business when I was 39 because I was just bored of that mindset it just I was starting to be turned off by the idea of just money 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 and I wanted to do something different so that was the first small change it was just a change of attitude instead of making money do something you're going to be passionate about and that's when I got into film um, and uh, but then it was really 2005 when I started to do my real philanthropic work with uh, with President Clinton, and started traveling and, and looking at the programs that he was uh, he was uh, organizing. And I really took a liking to his HIV/AIDS initiative, which was a brilliant move on on, on the Clinton Foundation's part, uh, which I funded. I put in quite a lot of money for that, and and you think back, that saved a lot of lives. You know, we're talking about 30 million dollars, 32 million dollars, that mostly went to to that initiative, and then that just inspired me to think about my life, and I thought, I wanna make this my life, and by 2007, I made that real pivotal decision to do a lot less business and do more philanthropy, and that was when it really changed about uh, whatever it was, 12 years ago. Um, and that and now it's consumed me yeah, I'm like you know me that's mm-hmm. all I care about is in mm-hmm. you know, my philanthropy and, and the work we do
0: yeah you spend I would say still the majority of your time over 50% of your time oh easily is oh, on easily more yeah, than that yeah is on. you don't giving. see how
1: much I do at home <laughs> that's Doing your emails, home. <laughs> that's what I do at home
0: that's great well um, so you're 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 Italian born, lived in Argentina, grew up in Aldergrove, a small town on the outskirts of Vancouver. And then you mentioned uh, President Bill Clinton's name. If you can summarize, how, how does a young boy, young Sicilian, Italian, Argentine born from a very, very blue collar family, how how does that happen and and did you ever dream of that sort of access and adventure yeah. and success
1: no i i had no idea and I, I would have never predicted that when i was 20 years old i mean you know what i think um and i truly believe this i think that um if you have the right attitude if you're passionate about things and you treat people well opportunities present themselves and i it, it, it just and i call it luck i i've had a lot of luck things just present themselves and a voice speaks to me and says go for that do that and you just trust your instinct and your gut and it it kind of guides you through life I, I, that's the only way i can explain it i don't think anything was planned there was nothing planned lionsgate wasn't planned it was just like okay now i'm gonna create a movie studio and it was it, it, it almost happened overnight um many of the things that I've done were never planned I, I didn't have a life plan I just thought I want to try different things I'm really and I get bored easily so if something I know
0: that <laughs> no no
1: but what happens if I make something successful then it's successful and then I'm bored I'm going then I have ADDH or and uh it's it's I'm curious, I want to try something else, and so I move on to a new project, and I want to see if that's going to work, and sometimes it takes a lot longer than other times to make something work, but it's just, and I keep seeing opportunities, and I'm not saying everything works, far from it, you know, some things that I've tried, you know, haven't worked, Um, but I try and make them work, and if they don't work at first, I really do my best, Uh, and I would say most times it works. So it's uh, it's just uh, I honestly think that it's your attitude, how you put yourself out there, how you treat other people, and recognizing when something comes your way that you go, yeah, I'm gonna that's I'll try that. It's instinct. I, I, I no other way to
0: explain it. So, why aren't you afraid of failure?
1: No one likes to fail. Let's be clear about that. You know, failure sucks. Um, uh, Lions, I'll give you a perfect example Lionsgate almost failed it was the toughest thing I've ever done in my life launched it in 1997 the first three years were the worst <laughs> business years of my life I was so stressed out we almost went bankrupt a couple of times and I had to keep it together I had to find the right management it was the, a very tough thing but I stuck it through and I remember people were, t- were suggesting to me you know just declare chapter 11 just you know you know you're just doing this for your ego and I'm I, that didn't resonate to me. I heard that and go what are you, what are you talking about i I couldn't think the concept of deserting that uh, it was just unthinkable so i I fought through it and thank God I kept it going long enough and kept the pieces together and found the right management and then it all worked out but um, uh, no failure you know I've, I I don't want to fail but to be afraid of it when you enter something, I just that I've never been afraid of. Like to actually make a decision to do something, I don't think. Oh my God, what if I what if, what if I fail? I usually go in with both feet first and and then find my problems along the way and fight through them and and make it work. But uh, no, I you know Steve Jobs um, gave a great commencement speech at Stan, uh, Stanford University a number of years ago before he passed away and you have to listen to that speech and he made a really great point about fear of failure and I can't quote it exactly but the gist of it was we're all going to die what are you afraid? you are already naked what are you afraid of there's nothing to lose go for it, in essence and I always thought yeah that's absolutely right and you when you get those moments of clarity that you know why would you be afraid of failure who cares? You, you know, you, you don't make it. Um, it's, people are going to judge you. I mean, just this—you get one life. You got to just go for it.
0: And it's and it's it's easy to be said. And I I'm with you. But are you born with that, or is it is it training of 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 a multitude of failures? Well, where, where you know it's going to be okay. What 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 is what
1: is that? I think that what we are we're born with i really do believe that i think most of what makes us you you is part of your fabric whether you're um, compassionate or a narcissist or whether you are have a positive attitude or a negative attitude those are part of who you are when you're born the rest of it i think is just luck and um, you know and, and being able to see opportunities and i think one of the greatest and, and this is why i'm you know i decided years ago to to give away my money because at the end of the day, um, a lot of it is luck and timing. It's um, opportunities not equally distributed. It's, you know, lots of hardworking, smart people just are not in the right place at the right time and can't take advantage of an opportunity. I was lucky, I was born at a time and came into business at a time where a great opportunity existed, which is not, like if you were to do what I did then today it wouldn't work out the same way. It's a different environment you you, you wouldn't make it uh, or your chances of making it would be a lot less. So I think that it's really attitude is really important and I think you're born with it. So you know if you're a, a positive person like you are, Brian, like you look you know you see everything in a positive light. that's your first reaction and then you do your do and my greatest this. downfall, but yes. <laughs> yeah no, no, but, but it's true but, but listen so, so have I you know I've yeah. always I used to, when I was your age I would look at things always in a positive light I got a little bit more cautious and cynical yeah, with age time. right because experience tells you that you can't jump in to everything you have to ask questions <laughs> first but you know it's but I love your positive attitude because mm-hmm. it's what makes you work mm-hmm. and that's what gets people around you excited and that's how you make things happen you cannot make in, in the deal-making world unless you can sell your vision with enthusiasm you're not gonna it won't work
0: Yeah. okay so as as uh, many of these listeners will be entrepreneurs or are entrepreneurs um, you hone in on something that's been really important to me and that's really defining um, what I'm really really good at And it's very few things. It can definitely count on one hand, probably a few fingers. Um, But then surrounding myself with with great people. Can you walk through all these different businesses you've created, teams you've created in the non-for-profit? How have you created such credible teams? And the word I always think about with you is you're an enabler.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so... If, if I think through all the things whether it's business or philanthropy is that and I'll go back to the passion and the positive attitude <clears throat> the key to getting great people around you or acquiring let's say you're in an acquisition mode and you're acquiring companies to create something bigger is to sell your vision to somebody else and if they don't see your enthusiasm they're not going to you know if you can't sell your vision you're, you're not gonna get you're not gonna make it happen so I think a lot of it is about just being Passionate, and then if you, if, and I'll, I'll, Telfer is a great, you know, and in, in the whole yeah. Wheaton River Gold Corp experience, which goes back to two thousand and one, I had to bring together. It was my vision about gold. Um, I had a very specific view on what was going to happen to gold, um, and I made a bold call at a time when gold was at it's absolute low 250 well, I, I don't want to
0: mention I want to mention though you wrote papers on this yeah, you're not wrote, a you are not a writer at the time no i was you if you, if you literally you, wrote <laughs> yeah. white papers and
1: i and i published them I, you know what I, if, I, if you read them now I mean I was a horrible writer back then I can't even get through the articles are you now, saying you're a good writer now I mean, I'm, I'm just, a much better writer because it's <laughs> practice right but uh, no I, and um, so I wrote these two articles um, on gold and the US dollar and they ended up being very um, bang on but once I wrote those and I thought oh my god if I believe this I should do something with that idea that's you know a business idea and seems logical so I I rounded up who I thought were the best players in the gold and mining industry. And I brought them all together, people I had known through my Yorkton years, <clears throat> excuse me, and brought them together in one room. I sold them my vision, and they were skeptical at first, but I said, guys, we have to do something about this. And, you know, over time, I convinced them that we should, and we all came together to do it. And the key person was Ian Telfer, who I'd known uh since the early 90s, and I, I, I remember when I left Yorkton, the day I actually resigned, I already had a lunch booked with Ian that I'd booked previously, and I kept that lunch. I remember telling him, listen, I've just resigned from Yorkton, so there's not much business to talk about, it, and I don't know what I'm going to do, but I said, if I ever get back in the mining business, this is back in 1996, I will, you'll be my first call, and he was my first call. And it was an opportune time for him you know he just gone through a very difficult number of years in, 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 in the mining business and um, so I I suggested he should be CEO and what an amazing pick I couldn't have picked anyone better than Ian Toffer and it was you know I did a lot of the work in the beginning putting it all together the finances whatever but he made it happen he ran that company he completed those acquisitions and um, what an incredible story I, mean, I actually I just wrote the chapter in my upcoming book on, on that chapter of my life and I had to go back and think about all the things that happened and and I think about I actually wrote Ian as I finished the chapter and I said you know um, you did a great job you should be really proud I mean very few people could ever do what you did I mean we started from nothing we created a 50 billion dollar market cap stock went at its absolute high I mean that over just a, num- a few years. No, oh, it's, it's incredible. So
0: take me back to those formative years of what was a sub $50 million company. I think it was like $20 million that you just mentioned mm-hmm. hit a high of $50 billion. Mm-hmm. And on an earlier topic of young Frank to President Bill Clinton did and not knowing where it was going to go, but you, you've done it. Did you ever think that Wheaton River would be a $50 billion company? Oh,
1: absolutely not. We had our initial goal was to build a half a million ounce producer. We thought that would be success. And that's what we pitched everyone around us that, you know, as our ultimate goal. And we started, our first acquisition was uh, 100,000 ounces. It was the Lewisman mine in Mexico. We surpassed (laughs) that 500,000 ounce mark easily within the first three years and then it became a major and uh, no I would have never dreamed just things happen we caught that gold wave perfectly I mean you couldn't have timed it better we caught, we conceived Wheaton River at $250 an ounce gold and gold had a big run um, it went to well, yeah, almost 2,000 bucks yeah well, $1,900 Yeah, yeah. right Even yeah over the years yep
0: yeah, you nailed the timing so that's uh, another thing that I've noticed with you <clears throat> Frank is that um, you built what became the best investment bank in the world for the mining industry, um, and you left right before a massive fraud came out in BRIEX and decimated the market. And although you had some tough years at Lionsgate at the beginning, Lionsgate then became is today the the largest independent film studio in the world. Um, we collectively timed the electric vehicle boom, and that was we successful. your call, buddy. Thank <laughs> you for the credit, and I, that is a common theme with you too. But um, we timed that. Um, talk to me about timing, and and how much does that? You, you mentioned a lot, but how much does timing play into <coughs> success? And
1: well, as I said earlier, timing is everything, um, and you can be brilliant, but if it's the wrong time, the wrong idea at the wrong time, or the right idea at the wrong time, you know, you're going to have a tough time with it. Um, But I don't know. I just think that this whole idea that my timing's perfect is not true. And sometimes my timing's off. You know, I had two great timing calls, leaving the investment banking business and getting back in the gold business in 2001, uh, five years later. But... If you go scroll forward to 2011, um, when the resource market came to a standstill, and by 2013 I was going, okay, this has to turn around, and and I and I was wrong on the timing. I was eventually right, but it took a few more years for things to happen that I pr- predicted in 2013. But my timing was, you know, I had to endure quite a bit of pain for about three years before things really did turn around and, uh, and now as you see we're now we're back in a full-on gold market and I've been writing about this the last while about what's going to happen with gold and it's happening because the environment has been set up for this for since the 2008 crash and you know they've the, the monetary environment and just the deficit spending the gold's going up and you know but I, I, my timing was not perfect <laughs> Okay,
0: let's go to gold because gold has been a major consistent passion of yours since the 80s. Why should people care about gold? Gold is, it costs money to store. There's no yield to it. Um, There's way better places to be putting your money over the last five or 10 years. Um, There's Bitcoin. There's many cryptocurrencies that someone can buy. Why should someone actually care about gold?
1: You know, I've heard all those arguments, and I just love you know, when people use those as, a, as a, a reason not to own some gold. First of all, gold is insurance. I don't ever recommend that people put the majority of the portfolio in gold, because that's just not smart. But anybody that's today mostly invested in the S&P and doesn't own any gold is a fool. Because... Um, it is the, um, it's the hedge in your portfolio when everything, if things go wrong. And when you have an environment like we have today, where we're going back to easy money policy, deficits are going through the roof, markets are overvalued. This has been a bubble market that's built over, since 2009. Um, we have trade wars starting. You may end up in a currency war. There are, you know, Geopolitical tensions with Iran, there's this big trade debate between the U.S. and China. The world is in a very precarious position right now. And and something, if anything happens, Mm -hmm. whether it's a geopolitical event or whether the market decides it needs to crash and correct 20, 30 percent, 40 percent, whether it's a financial accident, so many things can happen that would uh make the markets go down and gold go up so that's number one number two gold has had a traditional um uh, inverse relationship correlation to the u.s dollar and the u.s dollar is overvalued by everybody knows it the americans know it and they trump would love to get the dollar down he's actually spoken very He's been very vocal about this. He wants the dollar down so he can sell more to the rest of the world. So, you know, your exports go up. So the dollar has to be devalued. It will either happen voluntarily or they're going to force it down. And and I think that uh, Trump will bully the Fed to help him achieve this. If the dollar goes down, gold goes up because it's, you know, uh, uh, valued in dollar terms. And so I think that we're in a very... We're in a perfect storm environment right now that gold's going to, I think, surpass its past highs. We're in a new leg now, and I think we're in forever easy money policy, and it's not just the Americans, it's the Europeans too, and everybody's trying to cheapen their currencies to compete. And uh, we've put ourselves in a trap in terms of as a global community. we're, We're in this forever easy money trap like Japan got into 30 years ago and they never got out of I don't know how they will ever raise interest rates and I've been ta- you know I've been telling you this for years and I just wrote an article last week about it you know they've been pretending that they w- would be able to normalize interest rates after the 2008 crisis when they took rates down to basically zero near zero and they printed all that extra money i said it's impossible just do the math if you normalize interest rates you'll implode the economy you're the the government will go bankrupt with the the debts of $21 trillion and building by a trillion dollars a year. Um, The Federal Reserve balance sheet would be insolvent because it's all long data securities in there and the higher you raise rates, the lower you're never going to sell those. I just don't see how we're ever going to get out of this trap. We've put ourselves into an impossible situation where the next accident will require something that will be like uh, QE again maybe called by a different name but it'll be printing of money of sorts it's coming We're, our, the rates are going to head back down to near zero the next recession is overdue and they're already planning ahead of the recession by lowering interest rates now it's going to happen probably at the, end of, in, at the end of this month so I just think that the environment is set for everything in favor of gold the lower you mentioned carrying costs. So if interest rates are at zero, there's no, you know, there's, the carrying costs for gold don't exist. I mean, it's like you you need you need to have that gold as a hedge. And and I really believe that, you know, 5,000 years of history has shown us that, you know, when everything else goes wrong, what's left of value that you can ex- use as, to exchange for goods is gold. <laughs> All paper currencies eventually go to zero. It happens.
0: Do you have to just be in a wealthy position to own and get exposure to gold, or how 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 does how does someone?
1: Well, I think you know everybody can buy a gold coin. That's an ounce. You know, what's going to cost you fourteen hundred dollars? You know, listen, it's 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 the ultimate insurance if everything goes wrong. But I, if you have money to invest and you're just solely invested in the stock market or in the bond market and you don't have any gold, you're crazy.
0: I'm with you. I am with you. I, although I just moved to London, but grew up here in Vancouver, <laughs> the amount of people you and I have both met over the years that are just complete gold bugs. Um, we've, I, I feel like sometimes we're just, oh, I've been, just been convinced because of my environment. But you're right. If you look at history, I, I, I am with you. But what about if, um, if a millennial came to you and, and argued Bitcoin? Does money flow into Bitcoin or does money flow into gold at the yeah. end of the day?
1: I, I think that uh, the only, and I've mentioned this to you before because you know we, we looked at the whole cryptocurrency space a few years ago. <laughs> and, and this is what I don't like about cryptocurrencies. If they start to become a threat to sovereign currencies, the governments will shut them down. And it won't be that hard to do. Uh, if there's a combined effort to shut down a cryptocurrency that's threatening the real value in a crisis that's threatening the value of a sovereign currency. And I'm talking about the US dollar, or the euro, or whatever. If Bitcoin became big enough and became a threat, governments gone to war over currencies, okay, uh, to protect their currencies. They're not going to allow this to happen if it starts to threaten the value of their own currencies in a crisis where people are running for the exits. Yeah. I mean, in the past, when you've had. Currency crisis in any country, they've imposed, you know, currency exchange controls. You, know, you can't, whether it was South Africa or whether it's, you know, Zimbabwe. In in a time of crisis, governments do extraordinary things to protect their currency, and those are usually not in favor of the citizens. It's in favor of keeping, you know, the the, the system in place because. Even in 1933, when people were in the U.S. were afraid of, you know, they they were in the depths of the of the, uh, of the depression. Uh, Roosevelt entered, you know, basically said, okay, individuals cannot own gold; it was against the law, and that lasted until 1971. If you were an American citizen, you could not buy gold. The government could own gold, but you couldn't. It was against the law. You'd go to jail. <laughs> I mean, think about it now. Bitcoin becomes, you know, the place to run to. Everybody's in panic mode what do you think the government's gonna do that's my only concern gold is physical you can you hide it in your mattress you know you bury it in your backyard put it in the safe once you have it you have it it's yours
0: <laughs> yep i hear you you are um you are a uh, a very good salesman so <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> <laughs> can you walk me through the uh because i love this story um in terms of being a salesman um your dinner for the Lewisman Mine, and uh, <laughs> you got to read the book. You're
1: giving away my
0: book. <laughs> um, can you give a snapshot? Because I think this is one of the greatest stories of. All
1: right. Well, you're ruining sales on the book, but here goes. Um, so we had to convince. We had no money. Uh, we had only twenty million dollars. I think eighteen million was the number we had. This and is the
0: start of Wheaton River.
1: This was Wheaton River. It was uh, it was a shell company that we took control of that had their. Their mine had run out of gold and they were sitting on a pile of cash and they didn't know what to do with it. We came along and said, give us control of the company and we'll make money for your shareholders by building it. But we had $18 million and you couldn't find a an operating mine for $18 million. So I finally said to you and Telfer one day after, you know, we were struggling looking at something that was in the $20 million, $30 million range. And, I, and nothing was available or there were no opportunities. So I said to them, start thinking in terms of $100 million. Stop the and we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. Because you know, we'll figure it out. <laughs> so he started, and he went and found um, uh, the Lewisman mine, which was in Mexico. It was owned by an individual that who was in the car parts manufacturing business. A very important uh, Mexican family. They decided to give us an exclusive to. Um, Negotiate a deal because they'd put it up for auction and it was too small for the majors and the juniors in those days couldn't afford a hundred million dollar acquisition. So we convinced them to at least meet with us and uh, we flew to New York. It was myself and Gene McBurney that, uh, from GMP, Ian Telfer, and our lawyer. And we brought this fellow to dinner and um, you could see he was very skeptical at first. You know, he's going, you know, How do I know you're going to raise the money if I sign a deal with you? and so we had to convince them and uh, I went and did uh, an entire speech by then I would perfected the speech on gold and so I gave him my whole I said listen we can raise this because gold's going higher and I can convince people that they should give us the money so I gave him my long speech and he basically um, turned turned to me and goes well, wow, if that's going to happen, maybe I shouldn't sell the mine. <laughs> and, uh, and that's when G. McBurney said, what the hell does Frank know? He's a film guy. <laughs> and uh, But uh, no, it was great because it, 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 we actually ended up paying a little bit more money. We had to give him in, uh, a little bit of insurance with some warrants in case gold and silver went up and he actually made more money than he should have <laughs> as a seller uh, but uh, but it also happened that he was uh, someone mentioned he was the um, the the president or the chairman of the Mexican Institute of Art uh, whatever it was called and uh, and I happened to own Mexican art and Latin American art was a very I used to collect it so we got into this great conversation about all of the artists, you know Whether it's Diego Rivera or Tamayo, and then I talked to all the rest of the Latin American arts, and he became very friendly after that So it was it was really warming him up giving him the pitch and convincing him that we were the right guys to sell it to because we would raise the money and we did
0: You definitely did um you And was this pre or post writing your gold uh, paper? Post. Post. I
1: wrote the first one in 2001. And I wrote a second one in 2003. And um, and both times it was really an argument for gold and against the US dollar. And it ended up being very right. Yeah, you were right.
0: So you, you, you write a lot. And, and you've started your blog. You're writing your book. um, I've really enjoyed your blog even though I, I know you and have access
1: dot
0: Frank com. but I also have mutual friends of ours or, or friends of yours that I've met that say they follow it and they and they love it um, why why do you write
1: you know it it, it start if, if you think back what to when it started which was to uh, sell a vision so I had to tell um, I was trying to get a message across in, in 2001 and th- 2003 was about gold, so I had to, and that's when I first learned about storytelling. That you have to make, if you're trying to sell a message, you have to make it interesting. It has to be a story. Um, I did business with a guy named Peter Guber, a very famous Hollywood producer. Uh, when we first launched Lionsgate, he eventually wrote a book. He was the greatest salesman in the world. Hmm. He eventually he sold me. Uh, tell the win. He, tell it to win. Yeah. And if you read that book, it just explains how storytelling is how you sell your visions you don't do it by having charts with facts and figures nobody's interested in that people we've been over the thousands of years we have been storytellers that's that's how we've communicated throughout the generations by telling stories and everybody loves a good story so when i think when i write i think about okay what am i trying to treat i'm gonna um, i'm trying to talk about philanthropy for instance because i write a lot about the things that I'm passionate about that I give to and support and my various programs around the world so I'm trying to deliver that message but I do it in a story and I do it sometimes from a very personal point of view I you know I talk about how I feel and you know how I related to you know seeing my children it, like if I were ever to have to watch my children suffer what would that feel like and that's what a lot of people around the world whether the refugees are living in poverty or whatever it is they're suffering and they're watching their children suffer and I was go put yourself in their shoes so I like to tell stories I like to make it entertaining so that the reader wants to finish it and so I've achieved my goal I've entertained I've got their um, their their attention and I've kept their attention so that they finish the article and that way I get my message across and I think that that's why I love it. And I've been doing it. And, and it, writing's like anything else. The more you do it, the better you get at it. And I'm now I'm like I'm doing it every week. I'm writing my book and I'm writing my blog every week. So I'm continuously writing. And I find that it's becoming easier and easier to frame a subject matter and to put it in writing in a way that people go, "Wow, that was I really enjoyed that article." So it's you know it's now I'm passionate about it. And I was like. I, I love to sit down and write. You know, I go, okay, what am I going to write about this week? And I can be, you know, it can be about anything. It can be about cooking. It can be about one of our adventures, mountain climbing, or or about how I see life, you know, how you live a balanced life, or about the why I do the things I do in philanthropy. And it's, it's fun. I love it.
0: What does it do for you? Other than, <clears throat> I heard, if you could tell your kids and seeing them suffer, seeing one of these... Foundations or or initiatives that you give to, but what is what does writing do for you?
1: It it really allows me to really think deeply about things because you know, you know whatever we're doing, whatever we experience, you know it's somewhere in your mind. But when you have to when you sit down and write about it, you're forced to really think through every aspect of it and 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 you really and then you start asking yourself questions okay so why did you do that and how do you feel about this and i think uh, it's just part part of your self-discovery it's a it's a great way to express yourself because you have to sit down and, and, and put in Put it in a way that will appeal to other people so you have to think through very carefully sometimes you have to remember things you'd forgotten about and you have to do some research and forces you to just check facts and and you become more knowledgeable in the subject matter because you now you're writing about it you better get your facts straight so I just find it a great exercise and it's like <clears throat> it's like anything it's like any I wouldn't call it a hobby but it is a hobby I mean it's like how I express myself when I'm not working when I'm not doing something else what do I enjoy doing so writing's one of the things the other one is reading. I love reading. Um I read a lot of books, I read a lot of articles and papers. And when I find something that I really fall in love with, I read a lot about it. So it's um just another way to stay curious and stay engaged and and make you feel and think.
0: It sounds pretty um vulnerable.
1: <clears throat>
0: why why are you okay with being so vulnerable?
1: Yeah, you know what? <laughs> When, I remember when we first conceived uh, the music studio, and um, I met Ian Prince and Dave Corman here, and uh, we said, "Well, let's let's start a, mo- uh, a music studio, and well, let's write songs together." And so I told a very good friend of mine, who's a very big manager in the music business, and I've known for many many years, and I said, "I'm I'm about to do this." He, he said, "Why would you put yourself out there that way? What if you know basically saying to me, you know, you might embarrass yourself, you know, writing." A, crappy song and putting it out there and put it has your name on it and I thought Yeah, maybe but who cares, you know, and by the way some of the songs we wrote in the beginning were pretty crappy and um, As we've started to you know, and this has taken a number of years. (laughs) I see Dave over there laughing at me Yeah, some of the songs we wrote. I mean were really crappy and uh, and I remember playing one of these songs to My friend in the music business uh, And he just emailed back and said you can do better (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which was a polite way of saying that sucked. And so, but what we found is now we've been at this a number of years now, and we're working with different artists and different different top liners, and the songs I've gotten really, really good, like really good. We were playing a couple here this morning that uh, that have been written over the last several months, and you know, once you produce them and you you, you you listen to them, you go, wow, I had a role in play in writing that song. It's a pretty cool feeling. So. In, again being embarrassed of failure who cares what people think just do what you want to do and and if people don't like it they can laugh and joke behind your back who cares you're having fun
0: <laughs> I'm with you. how do you take criticism then how do you how do you turn that into positives
1: you know it's funny I, I, I read the book the four agreements and I've the, the best uh, yeah. life gave changing it to book. You, life-changing life-changing book, and it changed my life i read it in <clears throat> excuse me in 2006 um i think it's president bill clinton's he, favorite yeah book he called. gave it to me he, he, i was going through a tough personal time at the time and he saw i was a bit down and depressed he goes you know here's a book read it it changed my life and it will change yours and and i read it and it literally changed my life and one of the agreements is um don't take anything don't, don't take anything personal yeah. and that is i used to get angry when i would hear that some someone said something disparaging about me behind my back or in the press and whatever and i realized after you read the way that uh, the author describes the reasons he he says you shouldn't care it all made sense like those are their opinions they're living their lives it, their criticisms are a reflection of their own journey it's got nothing to do with you and the minute that I accepted that if I heard something a criticism or something nasty being said about me I would just say I don't care mm. or I forgive you it's your own problem not mine and the minute you, you dispel that you stop caring about what people say you're free you're absolutely I used to churn in my head when i would be angry that somebody did something or said something it would you know and it would take up all that mind space and when you're when you free yourself of that you have all the time to be positive You just go i don't care what he said you know that's his opinion or her opinion and you just drive on it's it's a very freeing place to be
0: one of your recent articles it was i think it was a few weeks ago um it was my favorite one, definitely, by far, that you've written. Um, and it was about finding peace in life. Can you, walk, can you walk me through that?
1: Well, it was part of the Balanced Life series. It was the last one. Yeah, it was about purpose. Um, and, you know, when you're young, and I'm pointing at you, <laughs> um, you're chasing things and uh, you're chasing whatever, you're chasing for a relationship or you're chasing for wealth or you know, business success, you know, fame, whatever you wanna call it, you're chasing. And you're, I, what happened with me is that I got to a point in life where I realized that you know, we're all gonna die, okay? And um, do you wanna die just a rich person that doesn't feel good about themselves? And I started to think about, shouldn't my life have a purpose? And I remember when I was a kid, I watched a movie called It's a Wonderful Life, which is a Christmas favorite, and I'm sure everybody's watched it. And and, and it literally changed the way I saw the world because the, the premise of the movie is that every person touches other people's lives. And if you're there touching other people's lives, it could be one person, it could be a million people, but if you're around and just by existing and doing something positive for them, it changes their lives, then you had a purpose in life. And, she, and and so i thought wow i'm in a great i have a great opportunity i have the resources and the connections to literally change a lot of lives what a great way to live your life to know that when you come to the end of it that it was a purpose that had you not existed those people's lives might not have been better and so my whole goal in life now is to change as many lives as possible and that's why I've immersed myself in so many different philanthropic initiatives, you know, and because it's always like, well, I know I can do this and if I do this, thousands of people will have a better life than if I didn't. That is it, purpose, and that's how I found my peace. It's like, I'm not chasing things anymore. I stopped chasing things a long time ago and now it's just, sure, I want to make money, but I want to make it for my foundation so that my foundation can keep Doing the things that it does—that's my purpose.
0: How did you find that level of, of, uh, of have more of a more conscious life? How how did that, how did that happen? Is it daily disciplines? Was it weekly disciplines? What were what were the things that allowed you to, instead of just chase chase chase, drive drive drive? You know, I've used the, the slogan for for myself this year was be a sailboat, not a speedboat, and just. The th- the <coughs> it goes
1: back to my. So I wrote the five articles, com and um, of the five secrets to a balanced life. And I wrote, wrote them over several months. And because I had to think about it a lot. And I always, you know, people would ask me, I thought, I've always tried to achieve a balanced life. And that is the secret is, yeah, work's important. Sure, it's important. But it's far from w- w- what life is. So, you know, I talked about learning. I always learning new things. I talked about adventure, experiencing adventures. That's why I force all of you guys to go mountain climbing and you know racing and whatever we do <laughs> is just to get that adventure. Um, we talked about the importance of family and friends and spending real time with them, which I do. I throw I'm always throwing dinner parties for friends or my family. Um, and talked about purpose, um, and it's achieving that balance that makes life good you know you can't only do one thing you have to have a balance and I found I think I found that balance and I hope people read what I wrote because I think it really if you if you get to the place where you can balance your life and for some people it's not as easy as for others but you can still find time to say exercise which I do every morning if I don't exercise in the morning I feel really lethargic I don't have the energy so I I, every day I work out I want to be physically healthy Um, I don't like to work out I've never worked eight nine hour days never because I didn't believe in it you work very hard for a number of hours and then you go do something else and for for me that's going home and reading or writing or doing something else that's songwriting whatever we're working on go for a long walk just to get some fresh air be outside you know, being indoors is a bad thing you know if you're indoors all day so you got to get outside and you know smell the roses but it's really it, it, it is about that balance and um, and when you when you find it man life's great
0: so you you've experienced evolution we we're actually talking about this because I had, I've just moved to London um, and I think you'd said something like um, your first few years there were really tough for you Um but those those were the days where you had to be by a phone. There weren't cell phones. Mm-hmm. Your office didn't move all across the world with you. Um, how how do how do you how do you suggest young people find balance today with this smartphone revolution that's happened? Yeah. That's a big sigh. How how
1: how? I think we're in a and again, you hate to be the older guy that's trying to give the younger telling the younger generation they're doing it all wrong because my parents did the same thing to us and (laughs) um you know and and I think the world adjusts and changes and evolves and you know you just got to roll with the punches but I do dislike what you know the whole uh smartphone social media uh environment has done to young people today they live by it it's like you know everything has to be in short messages. There's no way to express yourself. They can hide behind a text instead of talking to someone in person. You know they're all looking for likes on on, on Instagram. You know it's it's it. I think there's something very wrong with that, and I I, I would only hope that you know that parents because it starts when kids are quite small these days. You know they, they they're on social media. They get you know, their phones, and you know they're all all of a sudden they're connected. Um, you have to find a way to get the kids to put their phones down and and don't vi- visit social media once a day you know be disciplined go on at night for you know half an hour and just do all your things but the people that live in like these kids nowadays are on their phones all the time and I just do I, I don't think that's healthy I really think that's destructive and they live by that the rules of that world and, and what that you know the opinions that you know and, and the way they're judged and I just think it's it's a very it, uh, I don't know and maybe it, it will all change for the better but you know, or, or this will have some positive impact but I think there's a really nasty part of you know living your life through social media I really uh, I have a distaste for it so what would you do as a what as a teenager
0: what would you do knowing what's there? Social media is there. What what disciplines would you apply, knowing what you know and all the success you've had in every a lot of parts well, of your life? What you know, would you
1: if, do? if I could go back to being a teenager, well, we didn't have social media. No, so you we didn't, didn't. But um, what would you what would
0: you do? What what what, what, what would a young Frank Jusra do with? social media today how, how how can you turn it into a positive how can you use it as a tool like or or what disciplines would you put in the, the, where you the, wouldn't be distracted by it all the day? the
1: discipline is just not to use it all day long to put it down and do you know kids don't read anymore i hardly know any kid that reads a book anymore i was crazy i mean i you know they're just everything has to be all messaging has to be delivered in bite-sized pieces and it's like even the new that's why the news is so distorted. Nobody reads newspapers anymore. They they go on social media for their news and it's, you know, you're not always getting the real news and it's without any detail, you know, just getting like the headlines and or opinions, which is disguised as news. And, you know, and I, I just I just think the discipline would be just use your phone, yes. You have to be connected, but put it down do something else read you know uh, go you know exercise kids don't play anymore outside like I used to live outdoors with my brother and we played we were outdoors who does that anymore nobody plays outside it's 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 you know I think it's very unhealthy
0: let me flip it so my optimistic Mr. Optimism over here my optimistic take is never before has the world been as transparent right and never before has there been the connectivity you just mentioned isn't that an amazing platform to try and do good and spread the word of doing yeah, good I quicker think than I, ever
1: i'll disagree with you i think it's more connected but it's definitely not transparent look what happens what's happening with with the way news is being delivered through social media what it how it was manipulated and is still manipulated to this day to deliver messaging um, and where you're you're sent information that the the data networks know what you're looking for and they give you what you want to hear and often that is, they're lies. They're not the truth. There is no transparency. I think far from it. It's the opposite. We're living in a world of disinformation and because people don't, Truly, dwell into the stories, and and you know what I used to do during um during the 2000 when uh, when the U.S. invaded Iraq in 2003, I, I I went through an interesting exercise. I would watch the news from one extreme to the other: Fox News at one extreme and Al Jazeera at the other. The same story, and how it was delivered. I was always fascinated how the same event. Was reported with a, with a different message, you know, good guys, bad guys, and, you know, BBC sort of neutral in between and the CBC and, you know, and then CNN. So you had this range, but today it's gotten a lot worse. Today you are being delivered messages, and if you're not diligent enough to check out whether they're true, you're gonna believe something that sent you that's absolutely not true. That's a complete and utter lie. So I don't believe we're in a transparent world. I think we're in a very dangerous world.
0: Recently, you've you've sued or you're suing Twitter.
1: Yeah, I can't talk about that because that's going through the courts, and um, and you know I can't get into that. But you know, I I, I, I that's I, where I some sued. of the frustration comes. No, from. no, I, I sued because they. I believe they have the ability to to prevent the sort of abuse that happens through Twitter. And the threats that happen through Twitter and we're living in a very crazy world and, and and I just I'd had enough. I mean I just said you guys have you have the ability to do this. You're just not doing it. And so I'm trying to I'm hoping they will, you know, the the case or, you know, on their own that they'll change their ways. Because Twitter is an amazing platform. I, I have nothing against yeah, you're the platform.
0: very act- you're very active on
1: it. Yeah, very active on it. So if for delivering positive and true messages it's great but it's been manipulated by certain parts of of society and um, and it's harmful it's very harmful and it's dangerous and so that's why I'm suing them
0: I hear you Um, I want to finish with um, a question of talking to your 20 year old self well your son's almost 20 now Mm -hmm. Um, what would you leave him with if if you were having a coffee with him and what would you leave it or he's about to go to university what 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 what's what's uh what are you gonna leave him with before
1: well what I've told him and and I've been very clear with him I had this conversation with him a number of years ago and he was worried that um you know he sees my life and all the things that I've done and he was saying geez dad how can I do what you did I said he says I'm worried I'm people are his friends were suggesting to him, you know, how are you going to match your dad? And I said, boy, you got this all wrong. I said, I, number one, I would hate if you followed in my shoes. I actually, I, I mean, you can do what you want, but I would prefer you didn't. I prefer you do your own thing. I said, more importantly, I want you to do something that's going to make you happy. I don't care what it is. Just be very happy. And then I'll, if you do something you that you love, you will be good at it because passion begets excellence and excellence begets success I said and if you do something love and you're good at it I will be happy choose what and he gave me a big hug and he said thanks dad and and that's honestly that's what I feel both my kids I say do just do what, go your. you have to have your own path don't look at mine Mine was my own, and it was in a moment, a moment in time, and, and, I'm, and I'm a different person than you are. And so I think that that's the, the message I would tell my kids or any, anybody that I see that's young, you know, comes to ask me my advice on how to live a good life. Just, if you can, do something you love. And if you do something you love, you'll, you'll be happy. and You'll be good at it.
0: <laughs> Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Building Business and Balance with me, Brian Pacebrega. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and the wisdom of the guests I'm privileged to have met and worked with around the world. Subscribe to my series on iTunes for real, raw, and diverse discussions with thought leaders and pioneers on building business, balance, and defining your own success. Tune in next time for episode two featuring Jennifer McCarran, CEO of Thunderbird Films. Until then... Stay curious, my friends.